Hello, and welcome to the Movie Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, we'll have a spoiler-filled discussion about a movie we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I am joined by my sister Kay, and we are going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about the movie from 1985, Clue. Mm. We're going to spoil the movie. Mm-hmm. Ending A, ending B, ending C. And anything else we can think of. Anything else we can think of. Uh, Doubt will spoil the board game. It's a classic. This is one that uh, was originally, uh, Clue was a, a game... I'm not sure in which country, but Parker Brothers, I guess, brought it over and did it. Parker Brothers, uh, over the years, I guess, got bought out or absorbed into Hasbro, who owns the property. They've licensed it to IDW to do a comic book miniseries on, which made me think, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. Well, Clue, for me, was the first movie that kind of hit that, I mean, in the workplace, it's kind of that water cooler conversation effect. Whereas for me, I mean, I was in school, but everybody was talking about, did you see it? Which ending did you see? Yes. Where did you see it that you saw that ending? Because there were kids who were trying to convince their parents, we got to see it at a different theater to get to see one of the other endings. Well, this was a, a milestone movie in a couple of respects. First off, it was the first movie ever based on a board game, mm. which... Gave them a lot of leeway, but it had the downside of giving them a lot of leeway. Mm. And they stayed very true to the concept of the board game, and I think did a good job with that. But then also, like you said, it had those three different endings. And in the newspapers, because this was the 80s, there was no internet. Yeah. To find out what was going to play and stuff, you'd have to go look at the newspaper. They would even list ending A, ending B, ending C. Yeah. And different... Different uh, theaters in the same venue could have the different endings. And it was a, a brilliant idea because those endings are the last five, ten minutes or something. Mm-hmm. And if that. Um, but it's enough to justify another ticket price to go see the different endings. Yeah. Well, it makes you think back through. And even as we were watching the movie, because I could remember, okay, we're at... I almost want to call them watershed moments in the story. So we would enter a room and I would ask you, who's the last person to enter Mm -hmm. and stuff? Because I knew, okay, we're at a moment that matters. And there was one moment where uh, characters are calling out, let me in. And other characters are calling out, let us out. Yeah. Two people have found themselves because they got in through a hidden passage. Locked in a room with a dead body. Yeah. They're pounding, let us out, let us out, as somebody else is pounding, let us in, let us in. Yeah. And it was funny because as that was happening, I nearly asked you, wasn't that in the commercial? Because it was just so deeply embedded in me of, I feel like I saw that a thousand times. It's, it, it, it is a classic scene and a cla- it is a classic scene and a classic line because you've got two opposing sides wanting essentially the same thing that neither side can provide because the door is yeah. locked. Well, and one of the characters is the character that locked the door, put the key in his pocket, and now he's very much of the, I should have the key. I don't have the key. Let me in. 
mentality. Yeah. And, I mean, it just had some some great lines, everything from, uh, to make a long story short, too late. Yes. And they had just some brilliant comedic actors. Yes, definitely. Um, Michael McKeon. Oh, he was... Oh. He was uh, uh, Squiggy in Laverne and Shirley. Yes. But here, he's effectively, depending which ending you pick, he's doing kind of the Clark Kent routine. The yeah. meek, the mild-mannered, the clumsy, etc. Nails it. Yes. And then in one of the endings, he's the hero of the story. Yeah. Well, and in fact, in that ending, they have one bit where Tim Curry, as the butler, kind of turns around as he's coming out of the cellar. And the way they've lined up all of the other characters as kind of a one person is outside of each doorway. Mm -hmm. They've got people up on the steps, one at the front door with the who did it. It was just such a great shot of all of the cast. And it was one of those nobody really trusted anybody. Everybody had their doubts about everybody. None of the characters are in a way on the same page and yet they're all demanding the same question it well, was great it's funny because i think it this movie is is really a classic in terms of the whole mystery police procedural mm -hmm. uh, dinner party somebody dies kind of mystery sort of genre definitely because it sets up over the first uh, 80 some odd minutes all of the clues mm-hmm and then from those same clues, you get three equally plausible endings that were all set up. Yeah. Which kind of belies the whole playing fair concept of the person who did it is who they decide did it, and they're going to sprinkle enough clues, but there's usually enough to say it was somebody else legitimately. You know, I was, I guess I was reading a magazine article that was talking about how the TV show The Love Boat was written. And they were saying that they had three different writing teams. And one writing team was in charge of writing kind of the the core love stories, if mm -hmm. you will. One was in charge of writing what was happening with the crew on Got board it. the ship. And then one was in charge of writing kind of what was happening when they were ashore. And then there was one poor guy in the writing room who would receive these three scripts that and had been stitched them together. And he said, because, you know, this was back in the 80s, he was literally cutting the pieces of oh, wow. paper apart and using tape to tape it all together. And of course, they were still doing eighths of a page, mm -hmm. you know, to do the inches and how long it was going to take and stuff so he said it could have driven a sane man crazy but he wasn't sane to begin with so he was okay doing the job but what intrigued me as we watched these three endings was there were times when i'm sitting here going okay so we cut this line of dialogue out of the there ending were a couple of lines uh communism is a red herring yes um so you mean this wasn't about the uh fusion bomb and the scientists that went missing. What was there were a few other lines that yeah. showed up in all of them. Yeah. The the monkey brains isn't a, a regular meal in DC. Yeah. A, a few things. Um, and part of it is if you've got a good line, use it. Oh, definitely. And it also is how you can get three endings out of the same setup. Yeah, but it was intriguing to me. Like they had fifteen or twenty puzzle pieces that were really solid anchor pieces, almost like the corners mm -hmm. of a jigsaw puzzle. And it's okay, we know if we use these corners and frame pieces, 
we can fill the picture in from there. I'd love to know if they wrote the endings and then the beginning or Mm -hmm. how they went about the writing on this. Because uh, I went through the IMDb trivia page and it sounded like at one point they had like maybe six endings, but it's like, hey, this is going to be too long. Let's let's pull it back a little. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's there's certainly a lot of different ways they could go. But I think when most people who saw this in the theaters think of it, they think of the ending sequences. Yeah. Because they're, uh, first off, from a cinematography point of view, it seems like a deceptively simple film because almost all of it takes place in the house. Yeah. There's some stuff at the beginning, a little here and there outside, but most of it's all in there. So you think, oh, it's not that hard. But the way they did the the sequences where people are running down the hallway or back and forth. Yes. It had an almost Scooby-Doo level cartoon feeling to it Mm -hmm. and not, I think, in an accidental sort of a way. Yeah. And there was a, a physicality to some of the humor. Yeah. That you needed pros like Tim Curry, like Michael McKean, because there's one point where they're coming down the hallway, one group's coming down the stairs, and they just collide into each other, do the pratfall kind of a thing. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know how many times they had to do that, but if you've got people who don't know what they're doing, well, they're going to get hurt. Yeah, it's entertaining enough when one person pulls off their own pratfall really well to have two people collide into one another for a really good pratfall, mm-hmm. really entertaining. But for them to trigger two other people who were close on their heels yeah. colliding into each other, it was like a domino effect. Well, and there were a couple of times where Tim Curry, as he's zipping back and forth on the ground floor between the rooms, mm-hmm. and the way they set it up, I mean, it's been ages since I've seen the Clue board game, but they stayed pretty close to the, the layout of, of the mansion that way. Yeah. And, I mean, there's some some points where I could see filming the the endings in particular, where things really kind of crank into high gear, could have been a fairly exhausting day for these people. Yes. And it's hilarious looking at it from 30-some-odd years later to see a, a young Martin Mull, a young... Michael McKean, relative to where some of these guys are now, Christopher Lloyd. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, these were the guys in their youth and their prime. Well, and they they so knocked it out of the park in terms of comedic timing, the physicality of it. It was funny to me right at the start to realize it was set in the fifties because mm-hmm. I'd forgotten that, and I, I had known that again from the IMDb page. I was actually surprised they flat out said when it was said. Well, and I think they did that because they mentioned the House on American Activities yeah. Committee and things well, like that. I think it also is what makes it a fairly timeless film. It is, is I by think. By doing it as a period piece, it's not supposed to be contemporary. Yeah. It allows for the... I mean, if you were to do a modernized remake of it, instead of setting it in 54, set it in, you know, 2017... Suddenly, everybody's got their cell phones, the the internet, the whole thing takes on a, a yeah. very different kind of a thing to it. Yeah. Uh, if they were to do a remake, and I, they may, I don't know. I'm curious who would be kind of the best people to cast for certain roles. Mr. Body, mm-hmm. uh, um, Alec Baldwin. Yeah. I mean, he's shown his comedic stuff yeah. on Saturday Night Live and some other stuff. And there was something about uh, Lee Ving, who played the role there, that there's enough similarity there. Yeah. But finding 
uh, an equally talented comedic cast, I think could be done. But again, between uh, this is Spinal Tap with uh, Michael McKean, you know, all the stuff that, that uh, you know, Taxi with with Christopher Lloyd, uh, all of these people had a very, you know, uh, full career as comedians before, during, and after this. Yes. Finding an equally um, talented and equally matched mm-hmm. group of, of comedians these days yeah, certainly could be done, but it would be a challenge. Well, and they did a lot of stuff not just relying on the dialogue. There was a lot of expressions, a lot of reactions, a lot that was done in terms of the blocking and the who was where when. Well, and I think there's a certain level of trust slash comfort a few of the people had to have with each other. Yes. Particularly, I'm thinking Martin Mall and uh, Leslie Ann Warren. Yes. Because they got a little little handsy at times. Yeah. And it was funny, but that's one of those things that, you know, if it, it, uh, it could have led to off-screen, you know, tension, if not, yeah. you know, uh, handled well or whatever. Um, it's... Well, I was thinking, like, right up front when uh, the colonel arrives and then kind of gets shoved behind the door when it opens. Again, just some of the timing on that. You've got people who are comedians who understand how to make that play. Yeah. And again, you've got people that are to say, okay, you stand there now, you open the door only so far, you know. Yeah. If you've got people that aren't used to working in an ensemble in this sort of a setup, mm-hmm. it's not that just accidents could happen. If somebody just pushes the door open too hard, yeah, you know, somebody could get hurt. Yeah. Well, and going back, and the colonel was Martin Malt, but uh, going back to even before the door opened on him, when that he was taken into the room and the door closed, and he has his back turned when the door closed. Yes, and, the- and he turns around to the bookcase. He's like, where is the door? <laughs> yes, that was beautifully done. He did a great job playing the not really all that smart, but not stupid, stupid. The more brawn than brains. Not to say no brains, but more brawn than brains, well, Colonel. One or two times near the ending, he's like, yeah, I figured that one out. And everyone's like, yeah, everyone did. Yes, yes. You know, he, it's, again, not that he is just dumb as a post, but it's easy to run some stuff past him without him noticing. Yeah. You know, and again, there was a a good line of, you know, I don't need you to make me look stupid, and the response is, you're doing it well enough on your own. Yes. I mean, there's some really good back and forths on that. Yeah. If they were to do a remake, I would take those level of zingers and just crank that up a few notches. Mm Mm-hmm. Something to where, you know, you would have... the, you would want the dialogue to be such that, like, a Don Rickles kind of guy would say, damn, you know, because there's a lot of wit and wisdom to be had in that sort of a venue when you've got six or seven people that are there kind of not wanting to be and not liking it, just being in a generally foul mood and not liking the other people. Yeah. You know, one of the things that they did, I want to say just very tastefully, given it's a PG movie, and we saw it as kids, mm-hmm. and it's something that did not register with me as a kid as something to be something to have conversation about or something to be aware of was as they're going through what's everybody's secret that they're being blackmailed about 
And we get to the one character who stands up and says, well, I was being blackmailed, but I'm just going to talk about it because I'm not ashamed of it and I don't feel it's a secret. And he reveals, you know, I'm homosexual, but in my career, that's considered a security risk. Well, now as an adult, I understand all of that, both in terms of what that was in the 50s and what it meant. The real funniness of that was in the final ending, the what yes. really happened? yes. He's like, and I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. Yes. Wait, so he's not homosexual. Yeah. He'd been getting blackmailed for this. Was he lying? Was he not? There was photos, so guess not, you know. Yeah. Well, and he said in that one he was a plant. Yeah. He was getting blackmailed so that he could root all out. But the fact that they covered that whole thing so tastefully and effectively that it didn't hit that it prompted a kid to say, hey, what's being talked about before a kid was ready to understand? Yeah, they there were some adult themes to be had in there, but they were in the background and could just go over a kid's head. Mm -hmm. But as an adult watching it and you've got the very busty maid. Yes. And it's like, well, who will go with me? And two of the guys, I will. And him like, no, not interested. Yes. You know, and again, he's... Uh, he was wasted on Laverne and Shirley, I think. Yes. Yeah. And he did a good job there, but he was, I think, one of the standouts in this movie for me um, because of just some of the the nuances of how he played it. Not just the, is he homosexual or not, but the meek, the, the clumsy, the, I didn't do it. Yes. Yes. You know, and, you know, when, when people were just literally pushing him around, he's like, stop it. Yes. As if he were going to do something about it, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, and I mean, you're being very generous to say just pushing him around in terms oh, of God. knocking his legs out from under him and throwing him to the ground. He and Tim Curry in particular, the, the, the interplay between those two yeah. was just utterly amazing. There had to be a bond of trust, in my opinion, to get that level of physical interplay. Well, there's an aspect of this where a couple of them, uh, Michael McKean in particular, was as much a stuntman yeah. as an actor. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And he did just a, a phenomenal job. All of them did. Yes. You know, there were a couple of times where like when the chandeliers would drop and Martin Mull would, yes. it's like, I think he's about to have a heart attack. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, he just... Uh, did a, a fantastic job on that. Yeah. And to do all of this based on a board game that has a a premise, I'm not even going to say it has a plot. Yeah. They really worked in, obviously, the mansion is the setting. They, they did that beautifully. When, the, uh, the secret passages, they caught that. I love that. When they brought in the uh, the packages or the presents or whatever, and they've got the puzzle, uh, the uh, the player pieces... That was fantastic. The candlestick. I mean, that's something that, you know, how else do you fit this in? And they made it work. Yeah, yeah. And feel a little, uh, obviously a little forced, but, but it felt natural in the flow of the story? Well, it felt forced until they gave the dialogue they gave to Mr. Body. Yes, well, now you have a weapon you can go kill somebody. It's well, the, not just somebody. Oh, yes, kill Wadsworth, the, the butler. Because he's the person who put you in this position, and killing him will get you 
out of the position you don't want to be in. He made it sound reasonable. Mm -hmm. He made it sound like going from being blackmailed to being exposed to the world is horrific. Being blackmailed and being a blackmailed murderer is less horrific. It just seemed like an odd assortment of weapons to give people. Oh, it's hilarious. You know, a pistol, a noose, a lead pipe, a, a, a wrench. A noose that only had about three feet of rope beyond the noose so that you had to get close and personal. When we first see it, yes, but then when they're, uh, when Yvette, the, the maid, gets killed, it seems to have about six feet. So I'm not sure. They may have had a, a hero rope, mm. or in this case, a villain rope. <laughs> um, they never did explain how the candlestick got above the... Uh, Yes. The the bathroom door to, you know, hit um uh the butler on the head. That was funny. And you know, again, you've gotta wonder how many times did they did he hit the door hard enough? Did it not knock you know? Yes. Well, I was teasing you when they decided to gather all the bodies in I guess it was the study and it's only women can lift the cook who's a female. There's a definite gender bias in the film. Because if you notice, the women tended to be wearing the opposite color clothes than their name. Yes. Mrs. White is in black, etc. Yeah. The men are wearing their color. Oh, how funny. Almost yeah. implying that the women are, are duplicitous. Yeah, yeah. And again, like you said, the uh, well, the women carrying the, the chef and the maid versus the, the guys carrying the other, the male victims. But the women look like their name. Scarlet has red hair. Mrs. White is deathly pale. Fair enough. Fair enough. And they play into the uh, what little background is implied from the game for the mm -hmm. characters, which wasn't a whole lot. But to, again, to take a board game and successfully translate it into a very entertaining film is a credit both to the writers and to the source material. Yeah. It's one that's got enough substance and enough ideas to play with yeah and having a writer that can that can have fun with it yeah um one of the games i discovered in college i don't know if it's even still available was a uh i don't say a derivative game but a related game to clue it was clue the great museum caper mm. and instead of a murder at a mansion it's an art heist okay and it's a a board that's got a raised 3d aspect to it but it's it's still a two-dimensional flat board game um and it's the layout of a museum with rooms uh inner hallway and an inner room and there were doors and uh windows you know two or three on each side that you had padlocks hmm. that on that sat on uh the the the, the spot for the opening mm -hmm. and you know you would take it and underneath the padlock it would have if it was locked or unlocked Oh, okay. Okay. And then there were paintings that had that were essentially one of the two player types of player pieces. So what you would do is one guy would be kind of working for the museum or whatever and would put the paintings in the rooms, would position which doors are locked and unlocked, or that could be random, I forget, but also would position like two or three uh, uh, video cameras that had a straight line of sight. So you could put it like in the corner of a hallway and see down the two hallways or mm -hmm. in the main room, but you could only have so much. And then there was a die to roll of, you know, 
Do you look at the camera? How far can you move? Whatever. But what was fun about this is while they were guards for the two of the players or whatever, the thief, Mm -hmm. there was a pad of paper that had a map of the thing. Mm -hmm. The thief drew his route. I'm going three spaces. I'm going to go over here and was never on the board. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you had to be guessing where that person was. Yeah. And it was uh, it was a brilliant game. It, it could they translate that to a movie? I don't know. Um, but it's it's one of those things that you know a really well done board game can have a sense of fun, a sense of suspense, a sense of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And things like uh, Will Wheaton's tabletop uh, series, yeah, really shows just how fun some of these games can be. Yeah, and it's something that I think perhaps the the younger generation may not have availed themselves of. Um, so, you know, when they took Clue and, and translated it to a movie, it's like, okay, you know, it clearly worked. They're going to do that as a comic book. Clearly, we know it can work as a story. Do they have the right sensibility? Does it work? Is it mm-hmm. a good murder mystery? Do they go with multiple endings? Don't know. Um, other games, when they try to translate it to a movie or whatever, like Battleship or something, maybe a little bit harder. Yeah. But certainly having... Uh, strong writing and good direction, uh, a good set to work with, and just some phenomenal comedic actors. Yeah. Made a hell of a difference in this movie. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I went into it tonight as we watched it thinking, you know, I remember this just being hilarious. And it was a little bit of a slow start. Yeah. And it was good. It was entertaining. There were some good chuckles, a couple of good lines, the let us in, let us out, uh, you know, long story short, those sorts of things. But really, it wasn't until... The, the last act, or the three different variations of it, where it just really kicks into high gear, mm-hmm. and it gets very fast-paced as you get just a, a an almost insane version of, I don't want to say the butler did it, because that was only one of the endings, but well, that sort of, of let's, let's do the reveal. Well, but part of the strength of this movie is that the reveal is, as you recall... You arrived tonight, and he runs to the front door, and he yes, answered the, the door. The mockery of kind of that Sherlock Holmes scene of, let me tell you how it was done. And for the first half, they're like, yes, we remember all of that. You've told us that. We were there. It wasn't but an hour ago. Yes. You know, kind of a yes. get on with it. <laughs> and then you arrived. Yes, I did. And then you sat down. Yes, I did. Well, and just at other points, he's going through it pretty fast, pantomiming what they did, screaming when they screamed, you know. <laughs> he's telling them who slurped their soup. To me, that would be the casting requirement for the butler. Yes. Is somebody who's an amazing impressionist. But I think that's why when Psyche did a Clue episode, it worked. Yeah. They had that humor to it. Yeah. It, you've got to have that sensibility because if you try to just play this as a straight murder mystery, mm-hmm. you got to have a really good plot. You've got to have a good twist. And frankly, so many murder mysteries have been done. That's not a winning game plan necessarily. Yeah. Whereas if you have fun with it and kind of poke fun at the conventions of the genre yeah, without completely shattering them. Well, and I think a large part of what makes the movie work is you have, what are we saying, six, eight people with motives for the first murder, which we pretty quickly reveal wasn't a murder. Well, what I also enjoyed was how they go through six or seven deaths. 
Yeah. And at first it's, oh my God. And at the end it's, yeah, there's another one. <laughs> yes. But we do it without reducing the number of suspects. Yes. Yes. Now that takes bringing a few people in to, to ring the doorbell, have the door open and get shot or something. And I actually think the cop that found the uh, car with trouble at the bottom mm-hmm. of the drive and came up may have been the best arrival. He was certainly well used. Uh, Reginald Vell Johnson is who I would cast for that these yes. days. Yeah. Uh, from Die Hard and, and uh, uh, Family Matters, I guess it was. Yeah. Um, the, the cop coming in and then having to go look at the different rooms and them having to cover, you know, hide the fact that they've got three or four well, dead bodies. His arrival to me was the best in part because they were expecting the police. So they and I yes, at first think, okay, so he's the police we're expecting. So now you think if we deal with him, that pressure's off. But that's also one of the things, though, that belies some of the, the planning and stuff that was done up. Because the driver who came earlier, how did he just happen to have that kind of accident or whatever there and just happen to get to the house? The, the arranging of that seems a little far-fetched. So there's a couple of things, depending which ending you believe. It's like, really? Wait, we're well, supposed to buy by what? I think all of the endings said he was invited. And given Mrs. Scarlet broke down also. Okay. It seemed to be an out-of-the-way place. Absolutely. On a night just, with bad weather. It just seemed like inviting the guy and he shows up because his, his car broke down, not because he was invited. And then having the cop who was invited but seemed to be there just to investigate something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, why didn't they mention they were invited? Yeah. Oh, I agree with that. But, I mean, it's it's a minor point. It's an entertaining enough film. Well, Not a big deal to and me. And we don't know what their letters said. Fair point. But again, it goes down to it was arranged that they would be there. Yeah. Versus the were they literally invited the way the others were or not. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was just some, some fun stuff there. Uh, Howard Hessman there at the end. I mean, he only oh. shows up in the endings. Yeah, but he's great. Um, I liked him probably the best in the first one because I thought just when he shows up and does the the I'm gonna hear salvation is at hand or yeah. whatever at the door that was I think his best scene. Yeah, but he's also one that uh, they easily could have had in the main part of the movie because again another brilliant actor. I was gonna say it's funny how much this movie made me want to go watch episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati, Private Benjamin few things like that. Yeah, some of the shows that made some of these people famous. Yeah. A lot of those are shows that were a little before this, and therefore, you know, when we were fairly young. Yeah. Um, it's, again, just a terrific cast. I think if they were to remake this, and I do think they should try, because mm-hmm. I think it, it could be done uh, even better than this was, but mm-hmm. I think they've got a very high bar to reach. Well, I for me, one of the strengths of this is that it's good, clean PG comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, the only, I mean, if I were the person on the board that gives it the PG, PG-13, etc. ratings, yes, I would definitely give this PG, but I think those people were also sitting there going, you know, it's a good thing that we don't rate it based on just how low cut these women are and how much is about to fall out because they were pushing the envelope there significantly for 1950s wardrobe for 50s wardrobe even 80s sensibility and stuff they were certainly doing a little cheesecake and stuff 
you know, and I, I understand why they were doing it, but it reached a point where it was, okay, you've made your point. And especially when uh, Miss Scarlet just kept leaving pieces of clothing all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but for me, if they if they redo it, I want them to keep that good, wholesome PG, the whole family can go and enjoy it sense of humor. Well, and something to where, okay, somebody was stabbed, somebody got shot, and okay, you've got the knife sticking out of the back, but it, not something where it's gruesome, it's gory, yeah. or yeah, it's, it, again, it's a comedic death. Well, and the only reason that Mr. Body had to be bloody compared to the first time he died was so we knew he had a new injury. Yes. He was not gory, per se. He just had a little blood on his face, so we knew he'd gotten hit. But I think it was also needed so Mr. Green could get some blood on his hands Which and was be hilarious. accused, I didn't do it. And, well, and it was a great use of the line, you've got blood on your hands. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they had a couple of lines like that that just, they set the scene for what would otherwise be a little bit of, not a little bit, would totally be a cliche. Well, a cliche, but also a way to use that line with double meaning. Well, it would be fun if they remake it to get a, a, a couple of writers, because I think you need more than just one, but ones who can do those kinds of flips of the phrases. Mm-hmm. Fill the movie with that to where, I mean, you almost need something that is on par with like the best writing of Night Court or mm-hmm. some of the other sitcoms that just would every once in a while have one of those where in the span of a 30-minute you know, sitcom, you got hundreds of jokes. Yeah. So pack it with that, but also get it to where at the end, when you get to the whodunit part, yeah, go a little overboard, do more than just three endings. The other thing I think would be entertaining is if the butler wasn't the only one to do a, this is what happened. Yes. No, I would totally get it and round robin it and get it to where not only is who done it questioned, mm-hmm. how it was done was questioned, mm-hmm. maybe even the final murder flips out in them. Mm-hmm. But something to, I mean, in this day and age, you could do it to where you've got so many different endings. There's a question of, have you seen them all? Yeah. And that would be a fun thing to do. It's, again, it's a tough act to follow, but, you know, again, it's been 30 years. We've got a new generation of, of people who could give it a shot, both in terms of the writing and whatnot. Um, I would keep it a period piece. Yeah, definitely. You know, maybe go to 1955 instead of 54, but something to where mm-hmm. it's certainly not contemporary. And I wouldn't move it up into the age of the cell phones or anything of the sort. Well, it's funny because... With the world the way it is at the moment, I think having that communism is the red herring mm-hmm. still works. I think it's still relevant to people. I think so. Um, of course, I would have one of the endings be it's all about the communists. Yeah. You know, in other words, play against kind of what they did. Yeah. But, but in the 80s, we still had a red scare. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something that I think... There are certain times where that becomes less uh, part of uh, of our societal, you know, mm-hmm. mindset. Other parts where it comes back. Yeah. Certainly, if they do a remake of this, they need to do what they did here of having an incredibly clear geography. Yes. Of the house. Yeah. And I would almost start that with instead of what we got here for the credits of the drive up the hill, mm-hmm. 
I would almost start with the butler making the rounds through the house, doing the final preparation, and almost start it from a top down. Yeah. Matter of fact, if I were to to do a remake of this, I would get the whole first floor built on a soundstage such that you literally could shoot it from the top as if it's a board game. That'd be awesome. Because imagine having that as one of the cuts as they're doing the run around kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, And that also would just be a hilarious thing for one of the endings. Well, if you look at it from another perspective and the camera shoots up from the top. Yeah. So... Uh, this was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to IDW doing this as a comic book or, or doing a comic book based on this. Yeah. Yeah. On this property. I expect them to, to go in a, a bit of a different direction uh, with the six issue miniseries. I hope it's got the sense of humor, the sensibility, pokes fun a bit at the, the murder mystery genre, but is different than the movie. Do you expect. These any of these characters, all of these characters. Do you expect the candlestick? Do you expect the library? Yes. Okay. I expect it to have the same source material elements. Okay. The basic layout of the house, the murder weapons, and the cast of characters. Okay. All of that is is out of the original game, I believe. I mean, I just remember for weeks, if not months afterwards, people were quipping, you know, it was... Mrs. Peacock in the library with the candlestick, or it was, you know, and people would just grab character weapon room as a joke. That was the whole shtick of the game. To to win the game, you had to know who did it, where they did it, and how they did it. Yeah. You know? And again, that could be fun of having one of the endings turn out to be somebody you'd never seen with a weapon you'd never seen in a room you haven't seen. Hey, wait a sec, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of the cheat ending, if you will. And if you've got a plethora of endings, you could get away with that, particularly if some of them are pretty short and, well, that's no good. Actually, with my sense of humor, it's Mr. Body really did die the first time, but he was killed by the cook. And that's why somebody went and stabbed the cook was they realized the cook had poisoned him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I would do an ending where you've got, and again, this goes to somebody else doing mm-hmm. the, the whodunit. Imagine if Colonel Mustard, like in this case, if you had uh, him basically saying, well, this is how it was done. And he's just completely wrong. Yes. Totally off. And everyone's like, no, but No. If you remember the show uh, Diagnosis Murder, Mm. they were having a heck of a time one episode, can't figure out what happened, can't solve the case, and suddenly he finally solves it. And somebody says, how'd you figure it out? And he says, well, I suddenly tried to wonder, what would happen if you had two people who could never get it right and everything went wrong and you just thought they're incapable of murdering someone and yet that person died anyway? Yeah. Kind of the comedy of errors sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it was hilarious as he laid out. They meant to do this, but the poisoned food was fed to the dog instead, and that's why the dog's dead. And just the well, and that would be a hilarious ending. Is all of it was accidental? Yeah, yeah. This happened that led to this. He tripped. This goes off. This happens. Yeah, yeah. So it's again. There's a lot of of comedic potential here. Um. I don't know how well that some of that would necessarily work on the comic book page, so I'm 
I'm curious how comedic uh, IDW is going to go. See, and some of the comedy, it's the timing, the tone of voice, the things that, it as is you're saying. A lot of it is the acting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a definite challenge because there's only so much that can be done with the visuals and the written word, which yeah. is what the comic book is li- limited to. And yet that means that if the comic book does deliver those things, they've done one heck of a thing. Well, like some of the stuff here with Mr. Green's constant, I didn't do it. Yeah. Getting that sense of exasperation Yeah. on the written page is tough, if not impossible. Yeah. And that's one of the things where going taking a property from one medium to another to another, mm-hmm. uh, certain things are going to work, certain things are going to get lost. Well, when I read which of course is usually books, not comic books. But I find that if I have just watched something like this and then I read something that is a licensed property to it, I bring with me, for lack of a better term, the baggage of I can hear the actors' voices. Hearing the voices. To me, that's a question of how well both the art and the writing captures Mm -hmm. the character's because it, sometimes it's how how well portrayed the actor has done too. Mm-hmm. But there are certain ones that uh, they did a, a IDW did a Star Trek uh, comic where Shatner's group meets Pine's group, mm-hmm. and so you get the same dialogue from the two different casts in a few places. And it's like I hear you know uh, James doing, or I hear. Um, I'm trying to think. Who Simon put, Pegg? Simon Pegg, yes. Or Leonard Nimoy versus Zachary Quinto or, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it comes down to part of it is the visuals were spot on. Yeah. And the dialogue is the sort of thing I've heard them say or they would say or mm-hmm. the, the they've, they've nailed something like that. And that's easy to do for like an ongoing TV series. Yeah. A little harder to do for something based on a single movie or some such. Mm-hmm. But even so, when I read a... Uh, like a Back to the Future comic. Mm-hmm. Doc Brown sounds like Christopher Lloyd. How else could he sound? Yeah, yeah. And he's got a, a distinctive uh, voice and vocal inflections, you know? Yeah. It, the fact that he never once said, here, great Scott, was probably a good thing. I was thinking at one point, if he says Marty or anything Back to the Future, I might lose it. There was something in... Some either uh, video I'd seen around the time of, of Future Day where I think it was uh, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd getting together at a restaurant to, to just, you know, talk or whatever. It's clearly, you know, arranged. Mm-hmm. And it's a, well, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? Yeah. Kind of a thing. And then at one point, uh, Michael J. Fox is, okay, you know, g- give us a great Scott, you know, Christopher. <laughs> and he does. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a, you know. Clearly, those two uh, played well with each other. Yeah. And again, I think that was a lot of what worked here is not just that you had individually talented comedians, Mm -hmm. but they played so well off each other. Yeah. Well, I think it was in the uh, study when they were kind of first starting to do the recap and it's and this is when uh, Peacock had just had the drink and was screaming, and Tim Curry is nudging her in the back with, "Come on, you were scooting over, you were screaming." And every time he nudged her, she screamed, uh, not quite like a puppet or a marionette, yeah. you know, 
Irventroquist dummy, but it just was hilarious the way those two were interplaying at that point. I wish there was, because the extras on the Blu-ray were the three endings that we had all seen just then. Yeah. The three endings all together that we had seen, and the trailer, which we watched. Yeah. But I would love to have known what kind of experience this was on the set. Yeah. Were they having as much fun as it seemed like? Mm-hmm. Or was this something that was particularly challenging, or not so much fun, or rushed, or I don't know. Yeah. I'd like to think that they had a blast doing this. Well, I was teasing you that for me, watching the bit after the chandelier had dropped, that was the one point where I was like, okay, this is kind of a production values interesting moment because there's this huge, monstrous mess on the floor. The cop comes in past it. He's locked in the library. We spend two or three minutes out there with a broom. J. Edgar Hoover calls the house, and suddenly the chandelier is off to the side and all the glass is contained. We did see the broom in Tim Curry's hand. We did, and Upside he, down, he never used it once. He is one heck of a butler. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you were saying that, uh, two thoughts popped in my mind. Because the second time a chandelier drops is in one of the endings. Mm -hmm. And they it drops, you get Martin Mull's reaction, we get the freeze frame. Very kind of an 80s sort of a mm -hmm. thing. Followed by a title card of, well, that could have been what happened. Yes. Imagine if that was followed, and I think you could very easily do it now, and then you rewind yes. the video yes. really fast and then move forward again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Well, and I was teasing you because before the third ending, they said, but this is what really happened. And mm -hmm. I was teasing you. So the people who saw the other two endings are really bummed. Yeah. <laughs> what they saw didn't really happen. As if it's not all a figment of somebody's imagination. Yes. No, this was, again, a lot of fun. Um, I don't remember how much I played for the paid for the Blu-ray. It wasn't that much. It's well worth it. Yeah. I think it holds up exceedingly well after 30-some-odd years. Yeah. I attribute some of that to, again, period piece, some of it to good writing, some of it to uh, just a, a terrific cast. I will say that there were parts that felt a little slower than I had recalled, mm -hmm. but my recollection was mainly that fast-paced uh the whodunits. I was going to say, I've always remembered that the ending was what made the movie good, and the ending was what made you think back on so many scenes and say, who do I remember entering the kitchen when? Who do I remember being here at this point? And so if the ending wasn't so solid, the rest of the movie wouldn't hold up as well. Oh, and nobody would even remember it 30 years later. I can almost see a film being done that's almost a cross between this and I want to say like 12 Angry Men. Imagine you start a film, you're in- The court? No, not in the court, oh, okay. but I'm like, you're in the, the study and people are like, we've got this dead body. This is what's happened. Start with the whodunit. Mm. Never having seen stuff, have them re- you know, reenact it. No, no, oh, but you forgot about this. Oh, crap. You're right. And as a group, they're trying to work out what the hell happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, all evening, people have been dropping like flies. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if you were to start the film near the end, the chandeliers have dropped, the place is a mess, dead bodies all over the thing. Yes. And you've got six people sitting around, clearly a little drunk, trying to figure out what the hell happened tonight. 
I cannot remember for the life of me what show it was I watched where they had two people trying to recount what had happened at some point. And it's, and then I very politely said, and the other guy's going, no, you were not polite. What you said was. Well, it's a, a time-tested uh, narrative technique. There's this famous story it's based on, and I forget what it's, uh, it's R or something or other, Ramadan, I, I, I don't remember. But it's basically tell the same story from three different people's point of view. Yeah. And the basic plot line, you know, so-and-so does this, this happens, that happens, runs true. But all of the details are wildly different. Yeah. Each is the hero of their own story. Somebody else looks horrible, but none of the person's rendition. It was really just a minor thing. It wasn't a big deal at all. This was the big deal. Yes. So you'd have some of that going on. Yeah, definitely. And again, the whole endings here, we saw very different perspectives as to who could have done something, when it was done, how it was done, mm -hmm. all of that. And I, I think in this day and age of alternate facts and whatnot, yeah. there is a hell of a movie to be had with this. Very true. I mean, you could almost do it as a short run sh series or show with, you know, every week it ends. No, no. This is what really happened. Tune in next week to go to get so-and-so's point of view on this. Yeah. Be, it'd be a hard sell, though. And you'd need to do it like, I would do no more than five episodes, and I'd run them in the same week. Yeah. Uh, but again, this was fun. Uh, looking forward to the comic book. Um, I look forward to hearing about the comic book from you, hearing what you think of it. Yeah. I'm going to push for, uh, for Drew and I to review the first one. If it goes well enough, we may also do the final one. So I think it's a six-issue miniseries just to see how it plays out. Yeah. For me, this was a great nostalgia movie. And uh, one of our cousins who's a teenager was asking us for recommendations on Netflix. If this is on Netflix, I would definitely recommend it. Not only that one, but uh, we have another cousin who's a film fan. Yes, definitely. That I think would like it too. Yeah. Anything else? We good. I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and forum for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.